0: my family were watching, and Green Gables, the new one on Netflix. Right. And all of a sudden there's a whole lot of commentary sort of coming in, which is 21st century
1: commentary. <laughs> Doctor <laughs> Who does it as well, but yes. that's science fiction. But that's but Doctor Who. He's a time fiction. lord. He's a time lord. He's allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> He's not allowed to be anachronistic. <laughs> oh, come on. If anyone can mess with time, it's Doctor go- Doctor Who. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show is titled, That's History, a conversation about the importance of history for our everyday life. I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Galliott, Hi, artist, Peter. resident geek, and also known <laughs> as Box. Yes. Welcome, Box. And also, especially, all the way from Melbourne, and I mean all the way from, meaning he's in Melbourne, talking to us by the wonders of the internet, David Schutz, a lecturer, academic blogger and historian, which is his key qualification for today. Welcome, David. Hello, Peter. How are you? I'm well, thank you. In the interest of full disclosure, David Schutz has been a friend... A good friend for many years, uh, dating back to when we were both Lutheran pastors, happily translating the Vulgate text into English each Sunday um, in that little happy group. And we share a history of both having converted to Catholicism. And we've been good friends over many subjects, not the least of which being history for a long time. So I'm very grateful that David's joined us. David also has other strings to his bow. He's been involved in ecumenical affairs, in all kinds of associations with people of various faiths. And um, we hope to talk to him much more about that in the future. Um, Today is about history, but we'll come back to David on those. And, of course, the important qualification that he's a member of the Australian Rat Fanciers Association. (laughs) I think that almost sums you up, David. Um,
0: (laughs) Well, but you've missed one thing out and I've just realised it is probably one of the things that's taken up most of my uh, attention in the last few years is being a pilgrim. Ah yes, uh, I recently completed walking from St Mary MacKillop's birthplace here in Melbourne to her tomb there in North Sydney.
1: Twelve hundred and seventy-four kilometres. Well, via Eden. That is definitely a show we have to have. A talk about pilgrimage. We'll we'll definitely get you back for that one, David. And I suspect that it will have deep connections with history.
0: It has very deep connections with history,
1: of course. Um, what do we? Let's begin then with the question, what do we mean by history? And perhaps I'll throw over to you, David, for starters.
0: Well, the 19th century uh, historian Thomas Carlyle uh, spoke of history as uh, not simply being a whole series of events, but also being the way in which you connect those events together. And I think the important thing is the story that you make out of history Right. Uh, we will talk about interpretation later on, but mm. it's we're trying to make sense of meaning of the infinite number of facts.
2: Yes, and it,
0: in a sense, it's a kind of a join the dots yeah. exercise.
1: One of the most boring parts of history in in school was when they just made you learn lots of lists of dates and times and 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 of names and things like that. And you're right, the, the exciting part comes when we actually start to make sense of it or make a story out of it.
0: So, take for instance, people often talk about learning lists of kings. Mm. But I remember once after teaching on Reformation history in Ballarat, driving home, and I had my ten-year-old daughter in the back who asked, "So, what did you talk about, Dad?" <laughs> and we just went through every king from or queen from Henry VIII uh, right through to um, James uh, the um, Sixth and First, and covered. Everything that happened with every change of every king or reigning monarch in England with the Reformation. Right. And I think we were somewhere by the outskirts of um, Melbourne by the time we got to the
1: end of that little list. Well, the question I'd be asking, David, is that's all very interesting if your father's into history and all those sorts of things. What what extra value did that have for your daughter's life how will it change the way she grows up for example or or makes has her own thinking patterns etc as compared to someone who didn't have that in their in
0: their upbringing okay so I'm going to suggest a um, I'm going to tell a little anecdote here I also I do a little bit of teaching um, at one of the universities which won't be named right at this <laughs> moment but in my class you can name I it. had third-year nursing students and um, One of the things we do is we look at historical characters who are inspirations for our professional learning. Mm -hmm. And I said to them, who is the big name in nursing in history? And I got blank looks. Over in the far corner was an art student with a hand up in the air, uh, putting a hand up in the air. (laughs) And I said, no, 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 Uh, during the um, Crimean War, blank looks. Mid-19th century, blank looks. And truly these third-year... Nursing students had never heard of Florence Nightingale, right? And so there was no sense in which they had of the uh, background and development of their profession mm. and how uh, it how it came to have the meaning and the direction it does
1: today. All right, I'm mm. going to stop stop you there for a second, David, and ask Box: Did you learn about Florence Nightingale in your schooling? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. So
0: did you learn about Martin Luther King?
1: Little. So that was a very a
0: little, yeah, that's a tiny a, that's grimace from one. Fox. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Did you learn about Martin Luther?
2: Yeah, a little bit more.
0: <laughs> I'd be very interested to know what you learned. Did you go to Catholic school?
2: <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yes, that would be an interesting conversation. probably, And in fact, it probably would be worth pursuing briefly because that that question then comes up, David, you've just raised the idea of what did you learn about Martin Luther from a Catholic school? Mm. And that would be an mm. interesting difference between the Lutheran school, but it raises the question of who tells the story? And when mm. when they're coming from a particular angle, is that story a critique of their own culture or their mm-hmm. own background, or is it a, an affirmation or or is it propaganda? And I'll put that question to you.
0: Well, one of the most fascinating things in my historical learning was... Back in 1983, which was the 500th anniversary of the birth of Martin Luther, lots of books were written. And it was also the first time that books were written by Catholics. Serious historians were writing books about Martin Luther. And I picked up a gorgeous book with lovely photographs and pictures. By a chap called Peter Munz, and it was a biography of Luther. It was the first non-Lutheran, first Catholic biography of Luther I ever read. It was balanced. It was critical. It was, but it gave a wonderful perspective without the sort of hagiography that we used to get. Which is hagiography is when you write about a person as if they were a saint. Yes, um, that we used to get in the Lutheran tradition.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think. Hagiography yes. comes from the—I mean, it's—it's it's also a th- thing that Catholics do legitimately about a genuine saint. Uh, but w- the way, the sense you used it there is that sometimes we we pick a, a figure in history and we make out as if they're perfect in some way.
0: Well, I think it's a problem when we do it with our own saints as well, because we make plaster statues out of real people.
1: So what you're saying there uh, is basically, if you acknowledge the flaws of people in history, their lessons are actually much more applicable.
0: Absolutely. Um, how can you identify with somebody um, if you only f- focus on
1: their perfections? Ryan and I would agree that w- one of the most powerful books in theology is
2: Augustine's Confessions, yeah, where he admits... Definitely. Go ahead, Ryan. Reading through the chapters, uh, him stating the faults he he has and and the problems that he's gone through mm. and, and caused for others um, and bringing it back into the light of, of faith in mm. Christ... Uh, makes his own story that much more impactful. Mm. Definitely.
0: Can I recommend a a book for you? Um, James K.A. Smith has just finished writing a book, On the Road with St. Augustine, Um, and it is a great way of seeing the relevance of all that for our lives today. He's a Protestant writer, but he's very deep in Augustine. We understand our Catholic faith as something which has been transmitted to us via history.
2: Right. It hasn't
0: come to us simply in a book that has landed out of heaven mm-hmm. like the Quran or sorry, I'm saying that quite respectably, uh, like, and as if it's just been revealed uh, without any connection with the world around us. It's come to us via the saints, via the church, via the bishops, via the councils and all the rest. That's how we got
1: mm-hmm. our
0: faith. And um, a Bible-only Christianity tends to be, uh, disconnected from history
1: Right, it's it's interesting you say that I, I have a couple of Muslim friends who've berated me when I've attempted to understand the Quran because I don't understand the history around it and and it's one of the points that we have in my job is um, uh, interpreting scripture and teaching other people to do so uh, and I, I have to say um, the history element of it becomes an incredibly important element of it uh, precisely because you need to understand What's going on at the time someone's saying something? What's what's happening so around it? I'm,
0: I'm going to jump in there because it's an interesting... While they might say something about understanding the history, the history that they're talking about with relationship to the Quran is a story which has been pulled together hundreds of years after the Quran was actually written. Right. Um the, the Qur'an itself has almost no pointers to it, the context in which it was written, where it was written, or when it was written. And these matters remain great matters of debate mm. within um, Qur'anic studies. They're, they're made, the debate is held very carefully. Yes. Um, but I want to again, if I'm recommending an author, recommend a author called Tom Holland, not Spider Man. No, I
1: was going to say. Tom
0: Holland, the BBC. <laughs> you just, the you story. just had Ryan's
1: interest there, the whole <laughs> jumped out of my chair. <laughs> <laughs> he went with the Spider Man. Yes, <laughs> well,
0: you'll remember the name. Um, he wrote a book called In the Shadow of the Sword. Um, and that's where I first encountered him. But it was a search for the origins of Islam. And again, a link into the show notes because. This is a good way of looking at the interaction of religion with history and understanding the origins of Islam. I mean, in one sense, for instance, was. Did Islam come first and then the Arab conquests, or did the Arab conquests come first and then the religion right. behind it? It's just one small question. So but just, just for the listener
1: listen to be very clear, uh, David has worked for some time, quite some time, in ecumenical and, and interfaith dialogue and is quite comfortable being friends with and talking to Muslim scholars and none of what he's saying is an attempt to undermine anything that they might, you know, any respect for their Not faith. Not in the slightest. You know. So can I move us slightly further into a more general aspect of that it's not just about religion though history is a respect for our place in history so learning history if you like is not just learning my family tree but also the the origins of the cultural things that happen mm-hmm. in our the the values we have the the you know the the norms which we just take for granted they don't mm. just they don't just appear at the very beginning of time things like equality and, and justice and things like that they, they oh.
0: So I'm going to cite another Tom Holland book while you're talking about that because he's just written a book called Dominion, which is basically a a very short overview of the 2,000 years of Christian history to say how we ended up here today in with something we call Western culture and and values. Do you know a rabbi was saying to me the other day um, that she a, Jew, a female rabbi was saying telling me the story about the rounding up of the Jews in 1942 at the velodrome in Paris by the French police, and they handed them over to the Nazis. Six years later, that that took place just 500 meters from the Eiffel Tower. Six years later, 500 meters from the Eiffel Tower in the other direction was the place where the UN Declaration on Human Rights was declared. Between Those In those six years, and in that one kilometre apart between those two events, the world turned on a dime. Right. And it did it because of the historical reality that in the West, Christianity had picked up this Jewish idea and had taught that human beings have dignity. Right. And that has become an absolute bedrock of our society today.
1: Perhaps if I can challenge you slightly there, David, Uh, I'm not sure that, the idea of human equality uh, was invented in Paris in the 1940s. No,
0: no of course it wasn't. That's <laughs> not what I'm talking about. It was there, it was there, but it almost was lost. It was almost lost during the Second World War. I
1: think in fact, well, the, the actions of the Second World War would say that it was completely disregarded and held in contempt.
0: I think, and here I want to make a suggestion that Some people might want to check out a few alternative histories. Philip K. Dick wrote a little novel called The Man in the High Castle about the idea... Just a second, David. We uh, need to
1: explain to our listener what an alternative history is.
0: Some novelists have much better imaginations than some historians, and they are able to take historical contingencies and say, what if that didn't happen? (laughs) So what if the Second World War was won by the Nazis and by the japanese right and philip k dick's little book the man in the high castle is a what if on that now amazon has gone on and made a television series about it which is really worth watching but it is it would have been very easy at the midpoint of the 20th century for us to lose what had been building up over centuries beforehand which is the appreciation for who the human person is and the fact that that didn't happen is an historical contingency on the fact that the Allies won the war and we came very close. Um, Understanding that then and why that happened and how that happened is, as much as anything else, an historical question.
1: Right. But, I mean, understanding the, the history, you could still say, or at least I've heard people say, that's all very nice but we can still enjoy the benefits of all of these things from the past without having to necessarily know them, know the details about them. Now, my question is, why would it be important for individual, because we still technically teach history in school, even though they don't actually do much of it. We technically teach history in school. It's still seen as a fundamental uh, knowledge area that Every human being, we say, has to know a little bit about to flourish. Why would we say that? I mean, why can't we just enjoy the benefits of history?
0: Well, first of all, again, I'd ask the question of how much we do actually teach it in our schools. By the time you get to the last two years of school, there is, are some history subjects, but it's uh, very few schools teach more than one or two different units of history at that level. But I was engaging with a young person on Twitter some time ago, Uh, where I spend much more time than on the blog these days, (laughs) and she was accusing me of being an old fogey who didn't understand the new ways of things and how we think now. (laughs) And and I I just wrote down, I used it as my pinned tweet for a minute, I, I wrote back to her, I'm suggesting that the best education any young person such as yourself could gain is a deep and wide perspective of the whole human story and to build a solid foundation from which to view it and then, when you meet an ignorant old fogey like me, you can really hold them to account. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. But it's that it's that thing about building a foundation from which to view the human story, right? Um, you're not just the recipient; you're or Someone's going to come after you and stand on your shoulders. What way are you steering history? You're not just floating along on the water. What you do and what you say. Is a part of directing which way the stream of history will go from here.
1: Right. What about learning lessons from history? So I might throw this one at Box for a bit. Can you give me an example, Box? I know you might not have had much formal history, but just give no. me a couple of things what? from history that would I'll, change I'll stop the way you, you there.
2: Mean. Because <laughs> <laughs> there are some things I'm very well uh, known for not very, being very good at, and uh, one of them I joke about being allergic to numbers. Right. Dates and maths uh, are very bad. <laughs> I'm very bad at. And um, in terms of that, also remembering names to people. Yeah. So, But in terms of, like, for instance, like David just mentioned
1: uh, the Second World War and the horrors of the Second World War. Most of us would have heard of the Second World War. Oh, yeah. And yeah, therefore, definitely. when somebody raises, I mean, it's one of the things, what's that principle, David, on the internet, that how many minutes it takes to for someone to call someone else a Nazi? <laughs> or Hitler or something uh, like that. <laughs>
0: I haven't heard about how many minutes it takes but but these days that that is the ultimate insult that we can say to anybody is you're a Nazi.
1: Yeah, and oh, so okay. and that that's a historical reference. And mm. and the reason it's such yes. a horrific insult is because it implies something which we have demonstrably seen in historical fact is <clears> awful. It is
2: utterly yeah. utterly ruthlessly awful. So th- it's just just an example, well, so uh, on that as well, though, I remember at university having to explain to people the origins of the words like um, narcissist and, right. and the stories from the Greek, um, you know, Greek, mm. ancient Greeks, and having to explain a lot of these different stories mm-hmm. um, because they didn't know them right. at all. And knowing the story, let's say knowing the story, that, how does it
1: change the way you use the words or, or perhaps appreciate, you know, how, something in
2: this this life? Well, I, I think it, uh, it actually brings... A greater understanding of how to use the word, mm-hmm. you know, when people throw words around all the time these days, at you know, drop of a hat, um, not really yeah. knowing, yeah, the proper way to use them or what they really mean. And and if you know the story behind narcissists,
1: um, for example, it, you're not just saying a word which might have a, a dictionary meaning. You it carries with it an entire story, an entire That's right. image. Um, it becomes more powerful when we're looking so, at
0: So I was I will make a suggestion here at this point. If um I listen to a lot of podcasts and if people are interested in getting into history in an easy way, one of it is to do uh is to listen to podcasts. I um will highly recommend a podcast called The History of English, uh, by Kevin Stroud. He originally was setting off to um he would just do a hundred Podcasts, he thought. He's now up to hundred and thirty-four, and he's somewhere around the eleventh century. Uh, but <laughs> to actually learn where our language came from right. and the historical way that shaped it and the words we use today is an amazing way to get into a um, a fully understandable and and accurate use of words.
1: Right. All right. I'm going to throw a throw something back at you then in regards to history and the internet. Now, one of the um uh, one of the problems I've seen is that when I'm in Reddit and, and there's a rage happening, Reddit rage as I call it, um, people going back and forth, quite often people will make claims about history. They'll just simply make <laughs> a big claim and say, oh, you know, this is this is a fact from history. And then when you actually do a quick fact check or if you've already read the history, you realise it's a lot more complicated than that or that is just purely fabrication and propaganda. The internet has given us access to a vast amount of more information, but the trouble is, as you said, a lot of it's about who is interpreting it. Um, mm-hmm. I learnt some of my early childhood history from Jack Chick tracts, um, <laughs> and for those listeners who don't know who Jack Chick was, he wrote lots of little comic um, texts, polemics against Catholicism, generally speaking, and it was it was they were really, really awfully stylized uh, misrepresentations of Catholicism. Um, but it was pretty much what we grew up on as as an idea of Catholics. And that kind of use of history is what I'm talking about, where it becomes propaganda.
0: And so the question is, what is your source? And sometimes we deal with – when we deal with sources, we use the word primary, secondary and tertiary. Right. Uh, Most of the stuff we get on the internet is tertiary because (laughs) it's people saying they've read a secondary source. Right. Uh, So they might have – they possibly have read somebody else who is writing something about history. Yeah, or perhaps they just walk past behind. a library at
1: some stage. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe it's it's more than tertiary. It might be or whatever. <laughs> so. uh, it could be quite a long way. But what we're looking for, a, a real historian, and in a sense, I don't call myself an historian, um, ex- although I have done, I have published a couple of things on history one of the my most exciting projects was doing a series of letters, handwritten letters that we found between Archbishop Daniel Mannix and Archbishop Head, the Anglican Archbishop, back in the late twenties and early thirties, Right. which we found a series of twenty four of these in our archives at the Archdiocese, and I published those in the Archdiocese and Historical Commission's journal, Footprints and try to put them into context those letters those handwritten letters that I was holding in my hands they were primary documents right and then so then we're trying to set those into uh, into other contexts and even tra- say finding photographs um find uh, so it was all around a eucharistic procession and a debate about a big Eucharistic procession that Daniel Mannix wanted to hold in the streets of Melbourne, and he wanted to have benediction from the steps of Parliament. Um, <laughs> you find this, of course, got up the nose of all the Protestants at the time, and there was a big fight about it in the newspapers. So you're looking for letters in the newspapers. You're looking for photographs of the um, event. You know, people say there were 100,000 people there. Others say 500,000. Well, how do you know? You can look at photographs right. and do an estimation yep. of that. You're looking for – a, a primary historian is looking for primary sources, mm. and they may be written, they may be uh, – an archaeologist, for instance, you might dig up a piece of pottery and it might tell you a lot about the people who lived there.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: For, biblical archaeology is an – and its connection to biblical history is really fascinating. And I'm, if I can make a jump here, I'm going to – and it's a big
1: jump because <laughs> – Jump away.
0: Our, our – Christian faith is based in history. Yes. But the one event that is most significant is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes. And the one event your every av- well, not most historians, in fact, almost all historians I know will not go near is that event. Right. They will talk around it, but they won't go near it. And uh, um, a New Testament theologian and actually more of an historian, uh, Tom Wright, um, Anglican bishop, um, N.T. Wright, wrote a whole series of books leading up to writing about the resurrection of the Son of God, in which he looks at the actual history and how we do history and um, the the historical science, because he's wanting to say if the resurrection, as Christians claim, happened in history— we should be able to use historical methods to get as close as possible to that event. Yes. And, uh, yeah.
1: There's a, there's a question there, of course, of what what is history and what do you accept as evidence and um, and sure. how how strong it ev- Like there's the old um, saying that we probably know we have more documentary evidence of Jesus Christ than we do of Julius uh, Caesar. Okay,
0: but- so let's go. Per- Let's go past documents. Right. I'll give you something that is historical evidence that we're all involved in. Every Sunday, we sell, and and often during the day, we celebrate the Mass, we Mm. celebrate the Eucharist. Yes. The Eucharist predates Paul's letter to the Corinthians, of course, in which we have our first written document about it. he might have written that sometime around the end of the 50s AD yep um maybe around about 60 AD am i right peter uh,
1: um, I, there's debate but some put it slightly earlier than that but you're on the money
0: okay so he was talking about a ritual that was well established long before he wrote that and the question we can say is how did that ri- that ritual itself is an historical artifact yes Baptism is another one. Uh, so we can think of this um, the sacramental rites, which were being practiced by the Christian church before even the first New Testament document was written, mm-hmm. are pointers back to Christ himself. Yes. And if you're trying to find meaning in those words of the Eucharist, you're, you're pointing directly into the heart of the history of the crucifixion of Jesus.
1: Yes. Yep, I would uh, totally agree with you there, but I'm a little biased because I'm a scripture scholar. But I would even go further, David, and say that learning the history, for example, I think, did you have Dr. Kleinig as your lecturer?
0: I certainly did, yes. I
1: I think with the histories we've learned uh, from him and and to the original sources he pointed us to um, with regards to, for example, the Old Testament sacrifices, give us a context, a historical context for the meaning of the Eucharist, which is just mind-blowing and and every time i mean my answer to this question of how is history relevant is is probably the most powerful example is to sh- go through the ritual used in the temple and then show i mean ryan's nodding away here
2: he was in one of those classes yeah. tell me what you learned <laughs> in those classes. i remember we uh, we sat down in the old testament studies and um we walked through the sac- uh, the uh, sacrifice of the old mm. uh, the the jewish we set up an altar,
1: David, and yes. I had a pet, like a stuffed toy lamb, and I made them act it out. <laughs>
2: That's right. Act I, out the sacrifice. I got to be… Uh, the, the, a
0: non-bloody sacrifice.
2: <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> I got to be the, the priest in that uh, reenactment, and uh, it was astonishing to see how much of that resembled the modern mass, the, the, the mm. mass that we have today. And so the, the point of literally stepping through
1: that history and, if you like, reliving it a little bit is to demonstrate that, uh, you know, the modern Mass wasn't just invented sometime just pre-Vatican II or or after Vatican II. It actually dates back, way back, before even the texts were written themselves. It goes back into a liturgical history.
0: we need to, and the fascination, if we let it fascinate us, when we go to Mass on Sunday, that what we're engaging in is one of the oldest continual ritual practices in the history of mankind. yes. Um, it, it is a fascinating thought that, apart from the the spiritual significance of it, just culturally, yes. it ties us back to people two thousand years ago and all throughout that two thousand years.
1: And if you if you're taking um, and the Jewish sacrifices, to... you've got another couple of thousand years in there, or at least one well. And a half. Now,
0: an interesting thing, Dermot McCulloch, when he wrote his history of Christianity, titled subtitled it "The First Three Thousand Years." <laughs>
1: Yes, he's a little cheeky, Dermot McCulloch. I loved, loved reading him in that area, even if he doesn't—he doesn't actually follow the belief much. He's, he's actually quite fascinating. He,
0: look, and, and I know too that um, another thing we were talking about alternative histories before. There is another thing we can call revisionist history, right? And I'm a great fan of revisionist history, even when it's wrong. Now, what is revisionist history? Revisionist history is when we take something which everybody knows. And, you know, we don't question. And then the historian gets in there and says, ah, but there's this little detail you haven't taken into account. And if they pull away at that thread and they uncover something and a new way of looking at an historical event or an historical movement that gives us a whole new picture of it. Right. And... um, McCulloch does that a little bit, especially with his Reformation history, uh, his great book on the Reformation, Um, but he does it with the Christian, um, his history of Christianity, and he certainly does it with his recent biography of Thomas Cromwell. Right. Uh, Thomas Cromwell was one of um, Henry VIII's henchmen, or was the henchman, and... um, recently part of a um, fictional historical series um, called Wolf Hall by um, Hilary Mantel, which made him into something of a hero. Right. um, Well, he he was traditionally viewed as a villain. Right. But McCulloch has has worked through all the correspondence that was left, uh, not so much by Cromwell but written to Cromwell.
1: Surely the question in this case is that if if McCulloch is actually a a very – um competent historian he's he's revising these histories on the basis of some historical data but when when we sometimes yes. get revisionist histories it's simply someone rewriting history to suit their particular ideas it's almost like a no little, that's
0: more like alternative history well it's well no it could
1: it's even more insidious than that i'd say because in the george orwell um novels 1984 you know when they when the establishment in his fictional um countries, uh, decides we're at war with a different country now, they change the history to say we've always been at war with that country. And that's what I'm talking about. So, So, for example, when...
0: So, an example, I'll give you a couple of examples. We sometimes, if you're in the university studying history, you might study... Marxist history, right? Or you might be studying feminist history, mm-hmm. or you might even be studying queer history these days. Right. Uh, there's a, a, a specialist in, on Reformation and Martin Luther here at Monash University who actually specialises in queer history of the Reformation.
1: <laughs> okay, I mean, it depends how he's doing it. In my my view, because for for example, when I've read some some scholars for example uh like a feminist liberation theologian sometimes they they comment uh they almost completely reinvent history uh, and other times all they're doing is giving you a view of history with from a particular perspective with certain questions in mind yeah. for example so some of the queer commentary which happens on scripture i i go okay uh you're being honest about this you don't you're not calling it Critical method and anything, You're simply saying I am coming from a queer perspective, and I'm making commentary on scripture, so it's a queer commentary. Go, okay, all right, I'll listen to yeah, that. I'll have a, I'll have a conversation but with it you is about different
0: that. Different than the no going back and saying, oh well, the character that I the per- historical person that I'm dealing with. I can definitely see that they were queer. Yes, or, or the <laughs> yeah, one,
1: the PhD yeah. in, in Brisbane that was um, given, you know, was passed uh, that, that suggested that Christ was actually um, genderqueer.
0: Yeah, and so we end up with this kind of anachronism, and we see it all the time in television. If we're watching historical dramas, my family were watching Anne at Green Gables, the new one on Netflix. Right. And all of a sudden there's a whole lot of commentary sort of coming in, which is. 21st century commentary, <laughs> Doctor Who does it as well, but yes. that, that's science
1: fiction. But that's but Doctor Who. He's a time feature. lord. He's a time lord. He's allowed <laughs> to do that. <laughs> he's not allowed to
0: be anachronistic. Oh, come on. If anyone <laughs> can mess with
2: time. It's Doctor Who. anachronistic
0: <laughs> means you're mixing up Things from one historical period into another historical period, and you're importing them in rather than taking the thought patterns of that period. People in the past were human beings, but they didn't necessarily think as we do. Yes, the way we think is an historical development. Yes, and it unless you. This is another reason for being deep in history, because you come to understand. Why it is we think the way we do today? Yes. The way we think today is not the way human beings have always thought everywhere. I
1: was watching Pride and Prejudice, David. The oh, and I mean, I love the BBC version, but I watched also watched the very much older version of that. And someone introduced me to the Kiera Knightley one, and I was watching through that one. And in some respects, it captured some of the historical earthiness a bit better. But when um, Charlotte Lucas suddenly says to to Lizzie, "Don't you judge me," and you think, "Oh dear." <laughs> <laughs> That's so twenty first <21st> century. <laughs> it's just not. It it's doesn't fit. Or the
0: very recent, the latest Doctor Who um, show. They were in um, Aleppo in the thirteenth century, in and they were talking about mental health,
1: which is just a totally new concept.
0: Exactly that. In fact, the history of mental health, which is um, and the rise of our current mental health. Epidemic. You can look at that historically mm. and learn. A, in the last twenty years, and learn a lot of reasons of why this happened.
1: And in the um, in the era era of um, sexual uh, discussion and debate about gender, you can go back you know, through Kinsey and and many other developments, yep. Freud and things like that, and see the development of thought. Uh, this is why I get a bit annoyed when someone does a biography of Wittgenstein and tries to make it into a commentary on that would, would have only come after Freud or or Kinsey.
0: Or, or take the the same sex marriage debate. During that period, we had people saying things like, "Marriage has always changed throughout human history." <laughs>
1: and and they, uh, you say, "When? When?"
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Show me what you're talking about. And they would pick some case of some. Um, a uh, slave that Nero used in some fake marriage or whatever right um, and I'm thinking no that doesn't work.
1: Uh, <laughs> show, show me in Roman the, law.
0: Yeah show me in Roman law exactly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, anyone who's deep in history know that history is all, uh, marriage has always been between a man and a woman. It might that man may also have had marriages with other women. Mm. But it has always been between a man and a woman.
1: The other thing, David, that I've come across is that um, quite often we act as if modern debates have never happened before. So, for example, the abortion mm. debate or the contraception debate, uh, so many people assume that this is a very modern problem. It only popped up in 1930s when it first sort of became an issue in various places. But, in fact, the early church was having these discussions and one of the earliest non-biblical um documents the did decay they're already addressing these issues right back you know and it doesn't end the debate that something's happened before but it there takes a certain awareness to realize these if human beings have been discussing this and dealing with this for 2,000 years, at least in fact if you can go back into ancient Egypt and find similar records 3,000 three four you know three and a half thousand years, then surely there's a little bit of wisdom in at least f- figuring out what they had to say about it somewhere along the line.
0: It is a question of sort of having a map to our world today. Mm. There's all sorts of features in the world that we will encounter. Right. And history gives us a map as to how to navigate those things. Right. Uh, It's not simply a question of, um, was it um, Second World War Prime Minister? Uh, Good grief.
1: Winston Churchill?
0: Uh, Yes, thank you. (laughs) great historian (laughs) himself uh, wrote marvellous histories of the Second World War and um, also the first world war i think um but he said those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it ah yes that that is true to a certain extent but history in another way as everyone says never repeats as the song goes it's always a little bit different but knowing history actually tells us something about the present in which we live right it doesn't help us predict the future um but Take even something like we're looking at the coronavirus issue going around at the moment and the hysteria that's happening. It probably helps if people have some understanding of um, epidemics in the past, just, you know, even knowing what the Spanish flu and things happened in 1918.
1: A young student today was telling me it's just like the Black Plague. And I was going, "Mm, mm." (laughs) yeah, no, maybe you need to go and do a little reading. Well, it is
2: similar to the it's conversation. It's much
0: of, more like the previous coronaviruses that have been <laughs> knocking about in the last twenty years or so.
2: Sorry, Ron. Look, I was just just thinking about that the 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 conversation about history and and its effect. I mean, you look at art, and it's it's very much in the same thing. You know, it's a reaction to or lessons learned from this style that style that person that artist. Yep. Um, and I mean, I myself am still discovering so many more artists from the past and that's influencing my style now mm. and hopefully my what, style what is will, your medium uh at the moment well i'm expanding um, back into paints oil paints and acrylics uh but i've spent a long stint as a, a illustrator in uh, pencils and and uh, in ink myself but,
1: it was yeah. uh, david i had many a, a lovely class where i thought ryan was um very feverishly taking notes in my class <laughs> and I walked over to his desk and found out he'd instead interpreted my class about Christ in A Portrait of Christ, so, <laughs> which, was, which is quite lovely, in fact. All right. Probably,
0: art, art is a massively important aspect. In terms of primary history, art is a primary uh, source for our knowledge of history.
1: I'd say it's more important than text in some senses because it involves much more thorough interpretation.
0: Yeah, I mean, we don't have photographs of most of history. Mm. We do have the artistic representations, which actually give us something, of course, of the thought of the person, the Mm. thought patterns of the person doing, of the artist, right, um, which reflects so much of the period as well.
1: Mm. Mm. I'd hate to be a historian trying to get a photographic Picture of Picasso's era, mind you. Um. You don't
0: even want. If we can go to the crucifixion, how many right. people have said, "Oh, I wish we just had a video of um, of the real thing."
1: For yeah, instance? I'm not sure we do. We don't
0: have a video of the real thing, and if you had it, it would it would. I don't think it would do much for your devotion. <laughs> no, <laughs>
1: no, I don't think it would. It is interesting, David. In the seminary we both shared in the Lutheran Church, there was um, paint. There were paintings on the wall. At least when I went through. Um, of Christ in a classic Western sense, with the improbable haircut that he almost certainly didn't have, because it would have been abhorrent to the Jews. Um, in the, <laughs> that's the Western surfer look. Yeah. Um, but they also had a, a portrait of a, a portly Indian gentleman with blue skin, sort of very stylistically stretched out on a on a a nice stylish cross, and they had another one of an Aboriginal woman holding a, a child as the Madonna and Child. There's all these little sort of um, historical interpretations, if you like, from their own perspective, but looking back to to the significant event, the most significant events in history.
0: And there you have a question which branches out in terms of um, spiritual significance. Mm. Um, but I don't know what it actually tells us of the history of for instance, there's a beautiful Madonna, um, Chinese Madonna um, ma- and Child that was hanging in the um, archdiocesan offices at work. And if you go to Nazareth, for instance, and you go in the big church, and because you see all the representatives of the mother and child in the whole around the from around the world, all in their national ways. And this says something of the universality of the humanity of Jesus and Mary, but there is something too to try and um, see. Well, what is? What are the earliest representations we have, and how do they connect us to the yes. historical perceptions as yes. well? So I, I do think that our art and devotion needs to be remain with at least one foot. In
1: the historical reality. (laughs) Can I I perhaps, uh, to wrap up a kind of a bringing it down to earth and talking about history in a way that perhaps Australians can really relate to, there's an event or a couple of events that happen each year in which we utter the words, lest we forget. Um, and th- that's in a moment where the history of Australia, and in, to some extent it was a very carefully cultivated history because there was reasons to lionise Australian troops at the time to try and encourage people to rise to a certain level, but we, we still have this sense of there's an importance of remembering history. Now, not, not many of us anymore were there to remember it, we weren't actually in sure. the events and yet we talk about remembering it in the proper sense of the biblical sense of re- revisiting anamnesis. if you like yeah anamnesis so we we revisit the the events in a in almost a spiritual sense so that we do not and
0: sometimes in a really practical sense because this is now you're touching on what pilgrimage means Uh, back in 2007 i was at gallipoli for the dawn service right and um i was bussed in i was on a vip bus but we were (laughs) bussing past crowds of people walking in the darkness walking across the peninsula to get down to where the service was taking place on the beach and um, you ask yourself, and very few, most of them, they're all young people there with their sleeping bags and all the rest of it. And you're thinking, why are they doing this? It's because of what I would call an anamnasis of place, a remembrance of place. We go to the place where these things happen because we want to get connection with it. Mm. We Australians are on the... Um, Other end of the world. I think Paul Keating used a different way of describing it. And we're so far removed from these historical realities. But if we go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land or to Rome, I mean, just going to Rome, for instance, and you go to St. Paul's Basilica and to be struck by the fact that Paul is buried there, you can see his sarcophagus. Right. He's real. Uh, Is uh, such a. It grounds our
1: faith. I think that's the right and, word there, David. Uh, grounding dreams
0: and visions.
1: It's a grounding of our faith and it it's a, it's, makes it concrete. But I guess why I was pushing that particular example is that the reason why we're so concerned about not forgetting is not some kind of social obligation to some people who happen to be still alive, but a genuine concern that we don't fail to take the lessons that we're supposed to have learned from the, the tragedies of history and also the, the triumphs of history. Um, and that those lessons carry us through hopefully and we don't make the same mistakes and we, we hopefully maintain the same freedoms and the same, same values that we were looking at back then probably that's a good place to wrap up this particular discussion. So that's it for this week's podcast. If today's discussion got you thinking or arguing with your podcast device, let us know. Or if you want to know more about some of the things that David's mentioned and the others, you can subscribe to the podcast at thiscatholiclife.com.au or you can tell us what you liked, what you didn't like, what you want us to discuss in future shows by dropping us a line at info at ThisCatholicLife.com.au Keep in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Discord. Make sure you tell your friends. This is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast and we think that's an idea worth getting behind. Tell your
2: friends. So, it's time for shout-outs. Ryan. I want to, especially this time with the coronavirus and all these different things happening, I want to shout-out to all the uh, doctors and nurses out there. All right, David, shout-outs.
0: Yes, I'd like to give a shout-out to all my friends and colleagues, past and present, at the Archdiocese of Melbourne and just letting you know my prayers are with you and my thoughts as well.
1: Excellent. And our prayers join you in that. Uh, My shout-out is to those who taught me history. Um, I was a reluctant student at first and then an overly fascinated student after that and probably bothersome. Thank you for your patience, both with my indifference and later my eagerness. Thank you very much for passing on the love of history and the value of it, and I hope that I repay you by passing on something of my excitement about it to other people. That's all for now. Thank you for listening to This Catholic Life.